Hi, my name is Farah Nayeri. I'm an arts journalist and author based in London. I'd like to welcome you to the Culture Blast podcast, a new series of deep dive interviews with personalities from across the world of culture. My first guest is Emma Thompson, the actress and writer. Emma Thompson, thank you so much for being the very first guest of the Culture Blast podcast. And to help us launch this program, it's wonderful to have you. Well, it's a great honour to be here. I was thrilled to be asked. Emma, uh, how have you spent your time in the last year? I, I just mean creatively speaking. Obviously, this has been a very odd moment. Uh, we're in the middle of the pandemic and there's so many restrictions. And I wondered what an art- artist and artistic person such as yourself got up to. I stared at a lot of walls. I made a lot of tea. In fact, I, I actually was incredibly um, quiet. I, I didn't read much either. I, I spent a lot of time outside. I thought quite a lot, possibly too much. And I, I took part in the things that I could take part in in order to raise money, for instance, for, you know, the penniless acting profession. Um, a lot of creative people said to me that they found it quite difficult to write during that time. I hadn't got anything on my books to write. And unless I absolutely have to write, I try and avoid it. I'd worked and worked. I'd done quite a long stint of work. And I just finished a shoot for Disney, actually, with Emma Stone, uh, wild kind of romp called Cruella, which is the pre-story for Cruella de Vil, and had an, a really fun time doing that, but was exhausted by December. So I was looking forward to this year off, which then wasn't a year off, but not for all the reasons that one might assume. A kind of sense of responsibility somehow. I mean, obviously, I had to shield my mum, who's 88. She's got Parkinson's. And and my daughter, to a certain degree, who's only 20, who's just about to launch herself into the world, and then suddenly there's no world to launch yourself into. Mm. Emma, you grew up in London in a family of actors, and I always wondered what you were like as a little girl. Were you, uh, you know, a bit of a clown, a sort of natural performer, an attention seeker, or were you a bookworm reading books because you're also obviously a reader and a writer? What kind of kid were you? Well, I was certainly a bookworm. I read and read and read and read, and I'm quite short-sighted as a result because I used to be stopped from reading and then I'd get under the covers and do the torch thing, which I don't think is very good for your eyes. Of course, my dad wrote for children and he always said, I don't write for children. Children are just people who haven't lived as long as we have. You don't use a different language for children. That doesn't make sense to me. So I was surrounded by words. And he was a working class man who had left school at 13, did had no education, was self-taught, and whose greatest love was words. Mm. But then you're also, you know, a performer of some repute. So I imagine as a kid, you were a bit of a performer too, no? I was enthusiastic about life. Um, And there's quite a lot of performance in enthusiasm and curiosity, isn't there? I did, I did go and do drama classes. I was a bit bullied at primary school because I was fat and I had a plat and a and what they regarded as a posh accent because both my parents spoke RP, received pronunciation, BBC. In fact, when you listen to my mother when she was doing a children's program, she actually talked a little bit like that. It's that's all changed completely. Mm-hmm. So um, I was a bit bullied. I was probably not a 
performative, I don't think, at school. I was very much into my books. I liked I liked work. I liked um, the teachers. But I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And my mother took me to, and this is all coming back to me, a careers advisory um, interviewee thing. And I had to fill out a questionnaire, which I enjoyed doing. It was fun. And I handed it in and they did suggest either the arts or possibly the pulpit. Oh, really? And I've often thought that I'd really love to be a vicar. Really? I'd be, I mean, I'm not a a kind of strong believer, but nor am I a particularly strong atheist. It's, I, I do have a difficulty with the organisational side of religion, but I would love a flock of some kind. Oh really? So, so a vicar. Why? Why? What draws you to that idea? I mean, what would have? Why would you have wanted to be a vicar? Because I think it's something to do with um, being part of a community and helping. I was very helpful, and it's something inside me that I can't stop. I keep on wanting to help. Yeah, it's em- the empathy thing, right? It's the empathy muscle, of course it mm-hmm. is, yes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it works and it's helpful and sometimes it doesn't and it isn't very helpful and not very helpful to me either. But nonetheless, the muscle is there and it's absolutely incontrovertibly the strongest muscle in my body. Mm-hmm. So if I ha- ha- was faced with a choice existentially, either you can help or you can be a creative artist, I would help. I see. That's incredible. I didn't really know that. No, I didn't know that either. I've just discovered it. Now you ask. Oh. So empathy, is empathy a big part of acting? Because acting, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's changed your life. It's been very important to you, even though you didn't originally want to be an actor. And to those of us who are not actors, it's a kind of mysterious art form because you're expressing yourself by climbing into the skin of someone else by pretending to be someone else. That's how you are expressing yourself. Can you sort of explain that process and also tell me what you like about acting and what you hate about acting? The process is different for everybody. I've always likened my kind of process to a childlike ability to play, to pretend, because acting is really very interesting. And and. It is, I think, something innate. The capacity to trick your subconscious mind into being somebody else is a very particular thing, but it is what children do, naturally. A child would say, okay, now I'm the king of France. I see. And they are the king of France for that moment in time. So, in fact, it's quite a childlike thing. So it is probably something to do with the consciousness that hasn't yet been... Um, tamped down or corralled or ossified. And, and I, that's the closest thing I can get to because it's not... When I'm preparing to play some, some, someone, I will do an, a lot of research if that's necessary. Like, for instance, for Remains of the Day, even though I was playing a housekeeper in a posh house, I researched the hell out of the Second World War and the British fascism and the connection to eugenics. So not, yes, yes, all that sort mm. of... And also the class system, but I guess... Absolutely. But my grandmother mm-hmm. was a servant all her life. So she went into service as a tweenie and in-between maid in her very... when she was very young and had the most 
incredible experience because she worked for a childless couple who lived in Brighton during the First World War. And when the Zeppelins came over the coastline, the wife would leave saying she was frightened of the Zeppelins and then the husband would climb into bed with my unsuspecting grandmother committing serial rape, the result of which was a pregnancy that she told her family about, was supported in keeping, but the couple offered to take the child. They said no. She and her family said, we're going to keep the child. And then they found out that they'd done it before because they couldn't have children. So it was a kind of forced surrogacy. I see. And each, it had happened three times, and every maid who he'd made pregnant had refused to give up their child. So they, I mean, sort of extraordinary, really, that kind of crime that was written into women's lives at the turn of the 20th century. Right, and you knew that when when you were in Remains of the Day. I knew that. Oh, yeah, I knew all that history. And I knew about the history of, of servants. It was so hard. I mean, really hardcore life. So go back to describing acting. Sorry, I interrupted you. You were saying. Um, well, yes. Yeah, so it's the, the playing of it. The, the, and what I love about is is losing myself and not knowing what's going to happen. That actually is a little bit like writing sometimes. If you are creating a character, you can find that that character controls your hand and you're, as though that there's some strange out-of-body experience happening and you think, who's writing this? Am I writing it or are you writing it? And it's a bit the same with acting. I mean, there's also the perils of inhabiting someone else because that someone else could be in a million pieces, uh, deeply depressive, suicidal, etc. And you're inhabiting that person and so then you become depressive. And You've got to be careful. you really got to be careful. So obviously there is also a downside to, to acting and being on a level where you are, which is to say, and this isn't flattery, it's just fact, you've got two Oscars, one is for writing, one is for acting, and you're the only one in the world, the only person ever to have have done that, to have won an Oscar for each of those categories. So obviously, you know, you're not just any actor, and and people, people know you, you're, you know, everyone knows your name, everyone knows your face. And so how do you navigate that? How do you navigate the celebrity aspect of it? It's... It's much better now. I mean, I go around looking like this. Yeah, with the mask on, it's easy. But also, I don't... I mean, I'm in dungarees and I don't have makeup on. And But as you say, I am reasonably recognisable now because I've been around quite a long time as well. But if you think about it, what I'm famous for is not... Is, I mean, it's not like I'm in Mission Impossible. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's, I'm not a an action hero. I'm not seen by that kind of number of people Mm -hmm. in those huge, huge films. I mean, it's a build-up with me. You know, I didn't do films that I was remotely well-known for until I was in my 30s. You know, and I've always lived on the same street, opposite my mother. You know, I mean, the car mechanic, Mr Carmelli, up the street, he's known me since I was a child and will still follow me down the road going, Stop trying to save the world, Emma. You're being stupid. Just have another child. (laughs) 
Emma, let's let's be let's be honest here. I mean, the red carpet thing, the selfie takers, the mm. you are a very recognizable face and have been for a long time. It's not because you've been around a long time. You were recognizable 20 years ago mm. and famous and all of that and everything that comes with it, which is difficult to navigate. So how do you I think the thing that's most difficult to navigate is to remember that you're not that thing, that projection. You are not that thing. It's like you're carrying a big bunch of balloons around with you, you know, and everyone wants the balloon. Yeah. They don't look at, they're looking at the balloons, oh, <laughs> and they get very overexcited. And yes, it is annoying when people want to take selfies with you all the time. I, I, I think that holding on to a sense of your own unimportance, your own just, just another human being like everybody else, I think that takes a little bit of work. You've got to abdicate from... Anything that might encourage you to be grand, I really don't like that. And you can find, I remember, I remember going to see a premiere with Tony Hopkins in, so obviously I knew Tony very well, and um, I'd gone up to the posh bit where the actors were, and I went up to one of the actors in the film and peeled off a big smile and said, I just want to thank... And they just completely cut me stone dead and just walked past. And I realised that the reason for that was, A, they weren't very well behaved, but also they hadn't recognised me. And I was expecting them to recognise me. And I was really angry. And I looked at that anger and I thought, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how I feel about that anger. I'd like to, that. I'd like maybe next time that happens, I'd like not to mind so much. Mm-hmm. So keep an eye on yourself, I would say, to any actor who's becoming famous. Keep a close watch and do not let any kind of grandiose feelings invade you and take you over because then you will expect things and it's not an attractive condition. Mm. And it also means that you're just constantly you'd be constantly disappointed, (laughs) you know, because the world is not perfect. Stay close to the ground is my advice. Yeah. Um, You also straddle, you know, the Atlantic in a way because you're famous in America and you're famous in Britain and you managed to be a British actress doing, you know, period costume, you know, sort of movies and then also be with Mindy Kaling in Late Night and, and so many other sort of American, you know, playing with Tom Hanks and whatnot. How do you, how do you again, navigate those waters? Because you're, you've got a foot on each continent, it seems. Recently, I think I've, I've been offered some of the most exciting work I've ever had. I mean, it started actually with Mindy. Mm-hmm. Mindy said, you know, I love you and I've written something for you. And I, I was so moved by I me. Mean, I, it, I was very surprised that I would be in her orbit. Mm-hmm. But I think that um, those classics, things like Much Do About Nothing and Sense and Sensibility, Howard's End and Ray, those those characters, of course, those young women saw those when they were teenagers mm-hmm. or young people. Mm-hmm. And so we grow up, don't we, with a certain group of actors that have affected us uh, when we were young. Who are you? I'm Molly. Mm-hmm. I'm a new writer. You want to sit down? Okay. That's for metal sentence. Could you sit down, please? Oh, I'll just use uh, this trash can. There's, you know, there's hardly any trash in it at all. Oh, it's kind of comfortable, better than a chair. 
What exactly is wrong with my bits? You're a little old and a little white. What can I do about that? I have some jokes for the monologue. I shouldn't do this in an English accent, should I? No. But no, to go back to some of these roles that are being offered you, I um, you said very exciting. I mean, I guess you're referring to late night, but I'm talking about now what's hitting your doorstep. Um, well, I'm, I've, I've got three things in the offing at the moment. Um, one is a beautiful script by Katie Brand, who also said, you know, would you play this about a woman who ha- has been a teacher, a religious education teacher, and after her husband's died, it's two years later, she hires a sex worker mm-hmm. because she's never had an orgasm. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Can, can you remind us of the title of that film? It's um, Good Luck to You, Leo Grand. Uh-huh. And that's just been announced, actually. And there's a wonderful Australian director who I've just met on Zoom called Sophie Hyde, who did Animals, and it, she's great. Um, so I've had my first meeting with her, and we're looking for the the young sex worker. That's been fun. Um, and that's the next thing. And it's something so, such a wonderful idea, and Katie's such a great writer. So things like that... I'm about to do a little cameo, actually, in a in a romantic comedy about arranged marriage, mm-hmm. written by Jemima Khan, which is just beautiful writing. All these marvelous women writers, and they're being made. In it's marvelous that because you just that has changed, yeah, changed a bit. I'd love to get you to gossip a little bit, if you're willing to, about your uh, some of your great male partners in movies. Um, you know, the Hugh Grant once said of you that you were mad as a chair. He obviously has a lot of affection for you, but that's what he said on a chat show. Anthony Hopkins, all of these men, I mean, what what are they like? Well, so, okay, so Tony Hopkins, who I would consider my my soulmate, really, in a way. He, he just is the most extraordinary man and... He comes across as a bit scary on screen, you know, he does. He these. certainly does. Is he scary in real life? He, he can be. He can be. He, I, met, I met him when we did Howard's End and he'd just come off Silence of the Lambs and was more famous than God. And I, I took him a note from my mother because <laughs> she, she also is and was um, a, a wonderful actress and they had met because it was all same generation. So this is my daughter, please don't eat her, because, of course, he just played Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. And as soon as I gave him that note, this twinkle came into those Welsh blue eyes, and he just looked at me and said, well, I might just take a wee nibble from now and then. And it wasn't remotely suggestive. No. It was just he was being funny. He's the least, the least suggestive man you could possibly work with. He's just so bright and and passionate and full of this deep dark energy and of course we've now worked together three times because we did Howard's End where we just it was just the most extraordinary gift to watch him work and we would rehearse together we would work out what we wanted to do and then say to James Ivory who was one we just say James we want to do this please and he'd go okay and 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 Tony was a wonderful director I mean I I would come in and go, I'm not sure how to do this scene, or I'd be too bright or too energised. There's a scene in in Remains of the Day. 
in his study where there's this sort of moment where you think he's going to kiss her and he doesn't. And I'd come in with far too much energy. And Tony just said, listen, imagine there's a fly, a dying fly buzzing in the window and it's one of those hot, sleepy afternoons. And and as soon as he said that, I thought, oh, yes, the sort of moment or space in which something can happen. Are you reading a racy book? Do you think racy books are to be found on his lordship's shelves? What do I know? What is it? Let me see it. Let me see your book. Please leave me alone, Miss Kenton. Why won't you show me your book? This is my private time. You're invading it. Oh, is that so? Yes. I'm invading your private time, am I? Yes. What's in that book? Come on, let me see. Or are you protecting me? Is that what you're doing? Would I be shocked? Would it ruin my character? Let me see it. The tragedy of that relationship. I mean, we we used to sort of hold on to each other and cry. It was so touching and so redolent of our our grandparents actually and then we did King Lear and I played his having been his romantic partner twice I then played his daughter mm. and getting to watch him do those scenes because he never let let it drop for a second even if he was off camera Tony's so extreme He's like Dustin Hoffman, mm-hmm. who I also worked with three times mm-hmm. and who was similarly driven by this incredible energy, different Welsh, Jewish, extraordinary intensity, both of them. And what about the funnier film parts? You know, I mean, what, what's Tom Hanks like? What What is Hugh Grant like? Well, Tom's um, unbelievably sort of agreeable and likable and bright um and i think that carrying that around watching with with him when we did save you mr banks he he was always surrounded by people wanting that from him that kind of amazing good nature that he has and that people want all the time i think that must be quite hard actually but a wonderful man to work with. But he's sort of the emperor of Los Angeles in a way. Um, he lives in a very different world to me. Whereas Hugh, who I've worked with tons of times, actually, I, I kind of lose count because we did Love Actually, we did Rema- the Remains, we did the first, my first film I ever made was with Hugh, Impromptu, where he was playing, of all things, Chopin. And I was playing a stupid aristocrat. And we laughed and laughed and laughed. And I fell terribly in love with him, with just in, with his beauty, actually. He was so, so beautiful, but also fantastically and perversely naughty. So he was just very funny. And then by the time we did Sense, and I wrote the part of Edward for him, and he came on set, and he by that time had got a bit... <laughs> he was so famous. <laughs> and I kept on saying, oh, Hugh, buck up, will you? Stop looking so depressed. <laughs> Because by that time he was going, oh, I'm not a good actor. I'm not a good actor. I, I'm, I'm rubbish. My behaviour at Norland was very wrong. But I convinced myself that you felt any friendship for me. 
and that it was my heart alone that I was risking. <laughs> I've come here with no expectations, only to profess now that I am at liberty to do so, that my heart is and always will be yours. And then Greg, my husband, would come on set and be, you know, impossibly beautiful. And he would say, well, what's he doing here? He doesn't need to be here, does he? Because he was used to be the, being the most beautiful <laughs> man on set. Um, so that was, well, it was very amusing yeah. at the time. Yes. Um, then there's Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, yeah, Arnold. Talk actually, to me about Arnold. Actually, the first actually orange person I'd ever met. Yeah. Proper orange because of all those sunbeds. Rather courteous in a European, Eastern European way. But he did pick me up one day and just weigh me, which was weird. I just thought, what are you doing? He said, 132 pounds. <laughs> um, I said, you know what, that's very good. Can you weigh anyone you pick up? And he said, yeah, I'm pretty accurate. But you also said about him that he couldn't really act. No, so. not really. Right. But he was very honest about that. He said, look, I'm not actor. Oh. You know, so you tell me if there's anything you want. And I said, no, you're fine. You're absolutely fine. He was brilliant at um, at The Terminator. That's a really hard to act. Mm-hmm. And actually, he was rather enchanting in um, Junior with Danny DeVito. Yeah. And that's when I worked with him, yes. So that was a right laugh. So obviously, this has nothing to do with the man you just um, named. I mean, we're just moving on to the next question, <laughs> which is that you once said that you spent your 20s taking old men's tongues out of your mouth and obviously that does sound really horrible and the film industry has always been this hotbed of sexual harassment and sexual assault but nothing really major was done about it until we came across this tragedy called Harvey Weinstein and his sentencing for rape and sexual assault and and the birth of the hashtag me too movement and that has actually changed things not only in the film industry, but these are all areas where hashtag Me Too has actually helped bring about sudden change. And um, so I wanted to ask you what the Après Weinstein era is like. You know, what's it like now in the film industry? Has there been any improvement? Well, I would have to go back, obviously, before COVID to the last movie I did, where we had to do, actually, for Disney, a whole thing there's a whole somebody comes to talk to you about sexual harassment and we had a really interesting discussion about it because it, you can't formalize these things actually it's quite difficult to formalize because there's such a powerful power structure and hierarchy so me too notwithstanding it is very hard for a young ad assistant director that is to say someone who's running around getting people coffees and looking after the camera team and looking after the sparks. If you have a young, beautiful, tiny, for instance, AD running around and the cameraman is abusive or sexually lewd or whatever with them, it's quite difficult for them to take that to the powers that be, even though they have been asked to do so, because they're dispensable. Mm. And the camera person, generally a man, is not. Not not as easily. So th- these are the balances. And so what I did, um, making Last Christmas, for instance, with Paul Feig, who's a wonderful man, um, I had 
big old meeting with all the women on set, all of them, said, together, we are here to look after one another. Let, let us not pretend that just because this stuff's been brought to light that it's immediately going to stop. This is centuries of men feeling that they have access to women's bodies or to their mind or to just infiltrate them. This is not something that's going to change in a year or two years. It's just not. So we have to actually be really active and look out for one another. And if you're worried about anything, you come, you go to an older woman on the set, you go, and it's not necessarily going to be one of those big reporty things where it's going to be taken in front of a tribute because, because women are frightened of that, particularly women who have no power. You know, you think of John Lasseter taking a town hall in Los Angeles and all these people going, well, I'm not going to say anything because I have no power. And you also refused to do voice work in a, in a film. I guess produced by Lass. yeah, that was why because he had had a long reputation for being um, creepy, and I didn't understand why he was being hired. It's not as if he's in a difficult situation or needed the money. You know, you hire someone who's got a spotless reputation at the moment. If you if you're serious about changing the culture. If you're running a company, then get serious about Don't just mouth it and say, well, yeah, yeah, me too, absolutely. And then go straight to somebody who's got a very bad reputation and hire them to run your company. That's insane. Or at least what it is, is very clear that, this, that you don't care. You just don't care. So I guess the change is uh, still very incremental. It's incremental. And in some areas like Silicon Valley... Uh, there's a lot of work to do. Okay. A corollary of uh, this whole culture of movies that is basically has been around since the beginning of movies mm. is that women are objects of desire. I mean, this is what women are in movies, uh, as I suppose in biology, you know, as so long as they are s still of an age to procreate, basically, mm. they are um, desirable and sexy and we want them and hot, hot, hot. And then as soon as they sort of start looking like basically they're reaching 40 or whatever it is, uh, then, you know, the roles start to change or they don't come or mm. whatever. And that's profoundly disturbing because, you know, nothing against George Clooney, but George Clooney is pushing 60, maybe he's already 60, um, and he is considered a, a, a heartthrob. And, you know, he's a very good actor, and I've, I've covered film festivals a lot, Cannes, Venice, have seen him there, and he was absolutely charming. This is nothing against George Clooney, but it is to say that there is this incredible double standard, which is to say a woman uh, actress who is 35, 38, you know, that they're starting to look at her with suspicion. And so I'm wondering, Emma, whether that's changing at all. We've had hashtag me too, all this kind of this feminist wave in a way, but mm. that is that perception of the woman as object of sexual desire, is that evolving at all? That's such a good question. And of course, uh, Gina Davis has done such good work on it, hasn't she, with her extraordinary offering, scientific offering, you know, how many films do you see where there's two women talking about something that isn't a man? Right. Um, which is why Late Night was so fantastic, which is why uh, Leo Grand, when it happens, is so different. And Last Christmas was different and Cruella was different because it stars two women. Um, so that it, it's changing, but not nearly fast enough.
not nearly fast enough. Um, so all the women screenwriters I talk to, I say, well, what's what's the story? What are you? Because it's not good enough simply to give the women the guns and then make the women badass as well. Now, women have to be badass. If they're not badass, then they're, then they're somehow, if they're feminine in the way that they used to be, and they're not badass, yeah. then they're not welcome. Also, they're not allowed to cry, apparently, anymore, because we've just got to be like the men. So, I, I, and I remember thinking, well, that's not what we meant. That's not, When I've got a group of women together in my 30s and I said, okay, what's the female heroine? Who is that? What does she do? Because she hasn't got the wherewithal to do the Superman, to do the Godfather, to do that's not the point. That's that's not where our heroism lies. So how do we make it heroic? You know, why are there no films about giving birth for crying out loud? Does anyone even know about that? No. No. It's all hidden. All our heroism is hidden. Because what we've done is we've just given women the same parts as men. Mm. And that's not the point. How do we how do we turn into our own lives and make those stories heroic? Because we do need story. Story or not heroic, just interesting. Well, we just need women writers and women directors. Exactly. Yeah. There you go. Solved. <laughs> um, going back to some of the roles that, that were offered you, I remember uh, you saying in somewhere that, that after Nanny McPhee, you, you were getting these roles like to play Bradley Cooper's mother and, uh, and also to play Mother Teresa. Playing Mother Teresa would have Put a tin lid on your career. I mean, for God's sake, you were a woman in your 50s and you were asking, you were asked to play a woman. I guess she was in her 80s when we lost her. That was very funny. Um, you know, so what, you know, what does that say about, about the misogyny and the ageism? Well, it says exactly what it says. You know, you get past 50 and you're invisible. But, you know, it's very interesting. This woman I'm about to play, one of the things that she says to this young man because he says, you know, did you? You're you're perfectly attractive. Why can't you have find another chap? And I think because the only pe people willing to sleep with me are are people my age, and I don't want to sleep with somebody. I want to sleep with someone younger than me. Now, I've never heard a woman say that on screen. Say it and say like men. It's completely acceptable. It's completely acceptable for George Clooney, who is delightful, as you say, to have someone who's forty years younger than him or 30 years younger than him. If I have someone playing opposite me in a romantic way, they'd have to exhume someone because I'm 61 now. Do you see what I mean? It's the, it's, it's, yeah. It is completely and utterly unbalanced. Oh, yeah, exactly. And that's going to take a long yeah. time. And actually, you just have to show it. So, for instance, if Leo Grand, if the film that we make, speaks to people... And people aren't averse to seeing someone who's 61, you know, largely naked with a very much younger person. It's going to be very interesting that we've got to keep being brave about that. Yeah, it's it's a story of a 55-year-old widow who who wants, uh, who yearns uh, sex and who, who basically goes and finds a, a sex worker, male sex worker in his 20s, right? That's the story. Right. Yeah, I mean, it sounds fantastic. Um. If you're here with us today, it's very much thanks to a very close friend of mine, a fantastic writer, so talented, and journalist Stephanie Theobald. And um, 
Stephanie's latest book, Sex Drive, is all about female pleasure and sexuality. And that, of course, is something that is quite taboo. We don't, you know, it's not really discussed. Uh, as you say, it's one of those hidden things. You're also very upfront yourself about topics such as sex, about women's reproductive health, about facial hair, weight gain, the pain of having to look pretty for these parts, you know, and all the hair and makeup and everything. Other actresses would be really, really, really careful and never reveal that kind of thing. Why are you so kind of upfront about all of these subjects that others might consider taboo? Um, well, you know, it's a personality disorder, really. I, I probably could do with being slightly more boundaried. But I don't feel much of a boundary between myself and other human beings, actually. I don't really feel much of a boundary. I feel very connected. They might not, but I do. But then what about your self-image, which is what everyone else is obsessed about? I don't think everyone else is obsessed, actually. Mm. I, think, I think I get very uncomfortable when I'm singled out as somehow being the only one who doesn't care about how they look. I don't think that's true. And I think that women are much braver than they used to be. And, you know, you think of all those extraordinary actresses who've really been very bold about presenting themselves on screen. Having said that, um, I think that the thin thing, having to be thin, I think that's got worse. Mm. I actually think that's got worse. Um, and that needs to be fought tooth and nail. Tooth and nail. All of it is so important and political, isn't it, really, yeah, I about think, our I think, lives? Um, All of it is important. Mm -hmm. So I suppose I'm honest about it. Um, in order to, going back to our first, to, to be helpful. Let's talk about the industry that you're in, which is film. Uh, Hollywood today is completely overtaken by big-budget franchises, sequels, number one, number two, Roman numeral three, four, etc. They're mainly aimed at, I think, a teenage audience, and, and it's no longer the directors calling the shots. It's no longer even the producers. It seems it's the marketing team that is calling the shots in Hollywood. And so what is the future of film in, in that in that context, do you think, Emma? Especially when billions of people now, and I think they're in the billions, are sitting at home watching series and miniseries on their um, smartphones and screens. It's an interesting watershed, isn't it, really? Because I think that we have all in our industry, my generation certainly, been aware that this, this absolute devouring of the whole industry by these huge films meant that either you were making for movies for literally half a billion dollars or you were making them for a million dollars. But the, all the films that I've been in that people like have, have all been mid-priced between sort of 15 and 30 million dollars. You can make, I mean, you can make lots of films for that money, but if you want to make something like Sense and Sensibility was 17 at the time, um, Last Christmas, which we just made, which was reasonably expensive because it was about 38. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't cheap, but at the same time, it was a big movie. These mid-sized films, they're, they're the ones that have really, really suffered. I know. And it's um, a disaster area. But then, you know, you look at Parasite, Extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. And I think the appetite for that kind of movie is growing um, because I think it's being 
fed in a way by the some of the brilliant series that we're getting on on television moving on to your um environmentalism which is some it's a lifelong cause and uh, you've traveled to the arctic with greenpeace and uh, you've been filmed demonstrating i think on a pink boat in uh, central london oxford circus and I just wondered why that cause is so important to you. And beyond that, why do artists always feel like they need to have a cause? I mean, I think it's genuine. I just don't understand the instinct. Well, that's, I mean, it's again, it's going back to absolutely the same thing. How are you going to be helpful? Um, if you're the sort of person who looks around at the world and goes, that's terribly wrong. And I could probably help just by standing next to the people who are suffering or the people i mean i've always campaigned in one way or another you know with on aids on on women's rights on yes the 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 climate has just become a kind of it's something that none of us can afford not to campaign on really now it's so serious that um we're really at that tipping point that extinction rebellion expressed you know and they got our government to put to to actually say climate there is a climate emergency um so so that's just i mean that instinct is exactly the same instinct as as the the same empathic thing and also it's the terror absolute terror of what we've witnessed over the last 30 years knowing that this was going absolutely to hell in a handcart and being lied to properly lied to for 30 years. So um, that's just something I, I don't understand. I go, hang on, have you, do you know what's going on? Have you read anything about it? So how can you not be active? Mm-hmm. How can you not? I mean, I understand people not necessarily being card-carrying feminists um, like I am or rageful about what's been done to women for centuries and still is done to them. But the climate, no, because this is the only planet we've got. It's the only home we have. Mm-hmm. And soon it's going to be unlivable in for so many people. Yeah. Um, we're sitting in London, very socially distanced, I have to say. Um, you look like, you know, you are at the, the other end of a banquet table, basically. And we are weeks away from Britain leaving the European Union. Um, before the Brexit vote, you spoke, I think, at the Berlin Film Festival and described the UK as a cake-filled, misery-laden, grey old island. And I just wondered, (laughs) what are your feelings about Britain uh, weeks away from uh, it leaving the European Union? Oh, we've had... when, when, When the decision was made to leave, which actually I was complacent enough to think wouldn't happen, I, I, I just wept. For me, the European Union meant after two world wars, we were finally connecting to countries that we had been in dreadful conflicts with. My grandfather fought in both wars. For me, it was about that. It was about how can you want to divide countries that have had this history of war? Surely that's counterintuitive. Surely we need to find certainly ways of altering the deal, whatever that is. And of course, it's Byzantine in its complication. When I, I know someone who works for the civil service and he said, 
they needed in order to even start to work out how to do this, at least 300 economists trained in this area and they had two or something. It was because it was it was magical thinking. It was this somehow make Britain great again. It was the same rhetoric as the Trump rhetoric. And so, um, of course, I I've, have an enormous problem with that because I think that barriers and borders are not going to help us at the moment. We have to melt those down. We have to start cooperating on a global scale really quickly. But this is this is still a time when dinosaurs roam the earth, I'm afraid, and there's going to be a lot of work to do. But what seems to me, as someone who likes to try and help, um, however pathetic that might sound, what seems to me to be incontrovertibly clear is that we have to start cooperating with one another. Yeah. And I think that it's women who are going to talk to each other because yeah. they're not going to need to bang their dicks on the table. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> well, we'll see what happens. But, you know, if you think about what countries have actually managed well, they've been countries with women leaders. As I was saying earlier, you're the only person in, in Oscar history to have an Oscar for writing and another for acting. And yet you talk about this voice in your head that, that tells you that, oh, you're inadequate, you can do better, you should try harder. And I'm quoting you here that you're too fat, mm. uh, which is absurd. And then that you're not really a very good mother, which is, I'm sure, also absurd. Um, we all have these voices, but in your case, it just seems particularly odd and out of place. And And... Why do you think that voice is there? Well, I think it's very much, I think it's cultural, actually. I really do. I think it's, I think I now begin to understand, old as I'm getting older, as I, as I get older, that one friend of mine who's a great writer called Jess Butcher who has referred to Shit FM, which is this voice in your head. There's a wonderful um, Buddhist monk called Ajahn Sumedha who calls it the inner tyrant. There are words for this voice. There are phrases for this voice because everyone has it. It's very particularly Western, I think. Um, I don't think in Eastern cultures where they're much more connected to one another because that is the, that's the, the way of life that, that, that perforce, you know, in India, people are hugger mugger together all the time. They don't feel that boundary quite so much. But the more boundaries you get, the more far away you get from the person next to you, the human beings that surround you, the more that inner tyrant will yell at you. It's not a healthy thing to place all your eggs into the basket of your own individuality, because those eggs are going to get thrown at you again and again by the inner tyrant who will say, you are not good enough. Whereas if you're standing with other people and your boundaries are much less, I mean, they're safe, you know, you're not going to be allow people to abuse you, but you also feel that connection with other human beings, then you understand that we are all together in this. We are all swimming in the same water. We are all living on the same planet. And that sense of interconnectivity is what will always save you. The inner tyrant is really a meaningless voice, actually. Absolutely, especially in your case. <laughs> but in generally, it is. And, and just going back for a minute to the grey, misery-laden, cake-filled island. 
Um, I got into a lot of trouble for that. I was being funny, of course. It was just a joke. Uh, but my press here, my beloved British press, they like to take things that are jokes and then turn them into serious remarks and then hit me over the head with a club and try and see if they can make me bleed. Um, and that's that's just what they do. But I was thinking about it and thinking it was so sort of hypersensitive, that reaction. And I thought somewhere somewhere their feelings were hurt somehow that I would be rude or silly about my country abroad. So I started to think about it and I thought, okay, let's take that phrase apart. We are a great, it is cloudy here a lot of the time. Yeah. As for misery, we do have the highest rate of suicide in men under 40 in Europe. Um, and we do eat a lot of cake and our favourite programme is British Bake Off. So I would qualify that to say, you know, we are, this is a wonderful country and I, I, I've lived here all my life. I've never lived anywhere else and I, because I love it. Um, but I suddenly thought, hmm, I've got to be careful not to hurt its feelings. So um, finally, Emma, I just wanted to know, uh, you've accomplished a few things in your lifetime, but broadly speaking, and I don't mean your next projects, um, what's left for you to do? What, what, are, what co- territories do you still wish to conquer? Well, I'd really like to get a, my head around being present always, like 100% of the time. I'd like to work on that a bit. Um, it's very easy to get distracted. And that's not even a social media thing. It's just that to be distracted by activity is something that I find I find very easy. So I find it quite difficult to be still, which is why this COVID year has been interesting, because I've tried to enter into being a bit stiller. And then when you're stiller, you notice more. So I think that, which is something to do with the spirit, and something to do with getting older. So that's the landscape I'm interested in. It's not an achieving landscape. There'll be things to do because there always are. And there'll be things to help with because there always are. But to expand the landscape of the present moment and be as profoundly within that moment as possible... Thank you so much, Emma. I really, really appreciate your being here today and wish you absolutely nothing but the best in your next endeavours. Thank you, Farah. I've loved that. It's very, it's quite good for me, actually, to go back a bit and think about things and remind myself that I still feel pretty much the same way about everything. Yes, it does seem like that. Thank you so much, Emma. Thank you. Thank you to Emma Thompson for joining me on my very first episode of Culture Blast, a series of deep-dive interviews with personalities from the world of culture. Please do subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform and sign up on our website, cultureblast.org. I look forward to you joining my next conversation.